Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades from movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. When single shines the triple sun, what was sundered and undone shall be whole the two made one by Gelfling hand or else by none. That's right, listeners. We are discussing with spoilers of plenty the 1982 adventure fantasy The Dark Crystal, written by Jim Henson and David Odell, directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. This movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 33 minutes. This movie was chosen by our listeners during our online Twitter poll back in December. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. The Dark Crystal, a fantasy adventure film, was created by Jim Henson, world-renowned creator of The Muppets, longtime associate Frank Oz, and Gary Kurtz, producer of Star Wars. The film was designed by Brian Froud, one of Britain's foremost fantasy artists. The tale begins when Jen, a gelfling, one of the last survivors of the elfin-like race, is told of a prophecy by his master, a wise and gentle mystic. Jen sets to the task of returning the crystal shard to the all-powerful dark crystal, making it whole again and restoring light to the world. For the first time ever, here is a totally live-action film inhabited only by creatures, set in another world, another time. The Dark Crystal. Nice. That was what's on the box. Jason, great impersonation of Jen. That was, that was pretty spot. I, I thought it was right back there in the movie. Oh, that's great. I was working on it. I rehearsed it a little bit. Had to get the tone and pitch right. Yeah. Jen. Jen the Gelfling, our protagonist. Or one of a few, I should say. One of many. Um, so let's move on to our earliest memories of Dark Crystal. Jason, start us off. Absolutely. Dark Crystal, man. Wow. From 1982. What a trip. Here are my early memories or lack thereof. No big surprise. Uh, I simply and honestly don't have much in the way of earliest memories regarding this film, only fleeting images. I remember the very vague and general shapes of the Skeksis and mystics and the idea of a fantastical world being shrouded in rock and darkness. I mean, what I can say is there is a part of me, the child in me, that liked this movie for its imagination and sense of wonder. I do have that sort of emotional recall. Thus, I have a vague recollection of having a fondness for this film. Otherwise, I believe, of course, I must have known at the time that this was a Jim Henson production. Now, although I have no early memories of the film really to speak of, I can tell you that as a kid at nine years old in 1982 when this film was released, I had, just like so many children at the time, been raised on The Muppets, Sesame Street, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, one of my favorites, and then later, of course, Fraggle Rock. I loved all the classic Muppet characters from Kermit to Miss Piggy to Statler and Waldorf up in the box seats in the theater to the Swedish chef and, of course, Bert and Ernie to Oscar the Grouch to Sesame Bird and Cookie Monster, just to name a few. By the way, Beaker scared the crap out of me as a kid on The Muppet Show. Absolutely nightmarish. Wow, love Beaker. Oh, yeah, something about the way he looked freaked me out. But of course, I found all the other characters extremely 
warm and lovable. The point being, Jim Henson's creations were a constant and staple in homes from the mid-70s throughout the 80s and beyond, and for the most part, despite some, of course, adult undertones or overtones, according to my recollection, as well as millions of others, Henson was synonymous with fun-loving, adorable characters and stories that were not only entertaining, but... We, as kids, received an education from these shows, i.e. Sesame Street. We received some valuable lessons from positive and affirming examples as to how to exist and how to get along with one another. Henson was an important figure. He positively affected so many lives. So many of us grew up in that time having such a loving and nostalgic attachment to his shows and movies. It was truly tragic when we lost him too soon at the age of 53. So, as I remember the love, warmth, and humor associated with the Muppets, I... Again, only remember the shift in tone in regards to the darkness of this particular film. It's in the title, The Dark Crystal. (laughs) Other than that, I couldn't tell you about my experience seeing it for the first time, outside of the fact that I know I did see it as a child. What are your earliest memories of The Dark Crystal, Bill Band? Okay, so the first time I heard of The Dark Crystal was on PBS. So growing up as a kid in the 80s, my childhood shows were Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, The Electric Company, and Reading Rainbow. Even though I was too old for those shows, I still watched them. They were just fun. I love the characters and the hosts. Such a huge part of my childhood. And, and you mentioned it too. You know, learning learning through television, learning through Muppets mm-hmm. or Puppets. Outside of those shows, I rarely watch anything else on PBS except for an occasional Bob Ross episode or This Old House. However, PBS would actually put on some interesting program when they were doing their fundraising telethons, the ones where you donated $50 to get a This Old House or Mr. Rogers tote bag. Of course, it would always interrupt my favorite shows, which felt like for hours. During one of these fundraising moments uh, where operators were standing by, they had a making of Jim Henson's new movie, The Dark Crystal. And I remember seeing the sets of the Skeksis Castle. It's going to be an issue this whole podcast. Get ready, ladies and gentlemen. Skeksis. Pronouncing Skeksis. Enunciating Skeksis, Skeksis, Skeksis. Yeah, I always thought it was there was a T in there until this. And I I thought there was like Skeksis, but they're Skeksis. So being inside their castle set with the giant beetle crab-like creatures keeping guard, um, the set of Aurora's home with that massive display of their solar system and i knew at that point i wanted to see this movie and luckily i did my dad took me to see this for some reason we actually walked to the movie theater and it was about a mile and a half to the amc orleans 8 which i believe is not there anymore Um, they actually expanded at one point to the 12 that was my go-to theater as a kid i remember jumping in my seat when uh we saw fizz gig for the first time I remember being traumatized when Chamberlain loses the trial by stone. When the rest of the Skeksis attack and strip him of his garments, his screaming just terrified me. I remember walking home and it actually started to rain, more like a drizzle. And I was asking so many questions about the movie to my dad because I didn't pay attention to the opening narration. Nine years old. I'm more there for the visuals. I remember asking my dad so many questions and most of the time he was just like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm not sure if he listened to the narration either, but I think more of the questions were about the missing crystal shard, how that happened, how did it end up where it ended up. We don't really get that in the story, but that's basically what I remember. But it's been a really long time since I've seen it. So 
this is a good movie to go back and revisit. I'll always remember that documentary. I actually bought the movie recently, and I was hoping that that documentary was going to be on there, but it wasn't. Yeah, that's my earliest members of the Dark Crystal. Wonderful stuff, as always, Bill Bant. Like, I, I can just visualize you as a as a boy going with your father and sharing these bonding experiences and watching these early 80s films. And I love the fact that you came out with so many questions and just fascinated by it and scared and thrilled by it. And your dad was just like, I don't know what the hell just happened. And that may relate to some of my initial thoughts that I'm about to present. You may be able to draw a connection there. So yeah, go for uh, it. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Getting into our initial thoughts of the Dark Crystal. Wow. What a wild ride, man. This, as you said, was great to revisit. I hadn't seen it in forever and a day. This film is directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. Let's just start there. Two of the all-time greats in the field of puppetry and animatronics, not to mention that they're actors and producers and directors, and yes, they directed this film together. But in this film, not only do they direct... They perform some of the characters as well. And now notice I say perform, not voice. They do perform, meaning do the puppetry of some of these characters. Jim Henson performs the Gelfling protagonist named Jen, as well as the Skeksy High Priest. And Frank Oz performs the character of Agra, the astronomer, or Keeper of Secrets, as well as the Skeksy Chamberlain. Now, let's talk about Jim Henson briefly, because... He deserves to be talked about. In 1958, he co-founded The Muppets Incorporated with his wife, Jane, which later became the Jim Henson Company. In 1969, Henson joined the children's educational television program Sesame Street, which aired starting in 1969 and is still going to this very day. And then he produced The Muppet Show from 76 to 81. And of course, we know the subsequent movies that followed, uh, such as The Muppet Movie, The Great Muppet Caper, The Muppets Take Manhattan, and The Muppet Christmas Carol. And as I had mentioned tragically on May 16th, 1990, at the age of 53, Henson died in New York City from streptococcal toxic shock syndrome caused by Streptococcus apiogenis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. At the time of his death, he was in negotiations to sell his company to the Walt Disney Company. But talks fell through after his passing. He posthumously received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 91 and was named a Disney legend in 2011. Moving on to Frank Oz. He began his career as a puppeteer working for and alongside Jim Henson, performing the Muppet characters Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Animal, and Sam Eagle on The Muppet Show, and Cookie Monster Burton Grover on Sesame Street. And as we know, he also puppeteered and provided the voice for Yoda in the Star Wars series. His work as a director includes The Dark Crystal, The Muppets Take Manhattan, Little Shop of Horrors, which we've done here on this podcast, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. We, of course, here at the All 80s, love Frank Oz, as he often pops up as an actor in movies like The Blues Brothers, An American Werewolf in London, Trading Place, and Superman 3, and Spies Like Us. Frank Oz is still with us today, still voicing Yoda in the recent Star Wars films, and is still working as far as I know. Bill Bant. This movie, The Dark Crystal, has a total running time of only an hour and 33 minutes. Now, at first I was like, cool, a nice tight hour and 30. Then I was like, huh, that's a lot of fantasy to pack into an hour and 30. So as Jim Hansen and Frank Oz's names are synonymous with top tier puppetry performances, this particular film to me is synonymous with a fever dream. 
I had forgotten the bulk of what happened in this story and have no recollection of the plot. I'm watching the film's opening and going, what in the Sam Hades is going on here? Now, don't get me wrong. I liked it. I think I liked it. But this is really going for it in the dark fantasy department. So the film begins with a narration that supplies the narration you mentioned, Bill, man. The narration that supplies the expositional background as to what has occurred on this distant fantastical planet in this particular fantastical universe. Now, I love fantasy films. I love lore. I love mythology. So I was in, although I had to listen to the opening narration three times over so I could digest the world in which I had been dropped into the middle of the story where I was to start from. Interestingly enough, the opening narration alongside with the visuals of the Castle of the Crystal and this race known as the Skeksis was a microcosm for my initial and then lasting sensation throughout this movie, Bill Bant. What I was seeing and hearing was providing a sense that this tale is rich and steeped in historical mythology, but at the exact same time, what I was seeing and hearing, albeit beautiful to look at, was purely cosmetic for me in a way. I'm very conflicted about this, Bill. There's a sense that there's so much to this story, but in reality, the story told on screen in this motion picture is really quite simple. Yet again, The Dark Crystal is a strange, wonderful, confusing, dark and beautiful and off-putting and weird story. It's a fever dream for me. So I'm going to set the scene here for a bit for those that may have not seen this or need a reminder, and you'll get my initial thoughts within this as well. After the opening, we now know that there are two opposing races of creatures in this film, the Skeksis and the Mystics. Now, the Skeksis are these seemingly violent and giant vulture-like puppets that are draped in robes and standing hunchback. And the Mystics are these seemingly giant armadillo-like puppets draped in robes, which are also hunched over, but with four arms, and they stay very low to the ground. And when we meet the Mystics, they're a peaceful spiritual race, and they have been raising an orphaned Gelfling. A young elf-like boy named Jen, who looks like an effeminate elf puppet and sounds effeminate, and he has the name Jen, and we learn from his master, a mystic, that there's a prophecy that states that he, Jen, the Gelfling, must obtain the crystal shard, which was broken off the splintered dark crystal, and he has to travel to and replace this shard within the dark crystal, thus preventing the evil vulture Skeksis from ruling forever and restoring peace and life to the land. Got it. Good. But man, everything's really weird. The vulture-like Skeksis have a shrill and shrieking way of speaking. And on the opposite side, the armadillo mystics speak low and slow and actually bellow one-note musical harmonies in a chorus. And at that point, my initial thought was, oh yeah, I didn't remember any of this and this shit's going to get weird. And I guess my point is in setting the table that there was this feeling as I watched it that it was just so foreign because of course there are no humans in this movie. And then we have that tactile nature of these Races of creature puppets that are so intricate and cool looking, but we know they're puppets and some look realistic and some such as the Gelflings have these soft fabric faces that look just like Muppets, not just puppets, but Muppets. And it's all a bit destabilizing at first. It's a fever dream. So while watching this, I added such a deep appreciation for the artistry and craftsmanship that was required to make this movie. Not to mention the obvious, the talent of the performers operating the puppets and the voice actors providing the voices. So much imagination behind this production. They invented languages for this. I appreciate that. But strangely enough, I felt a little empty along the way. This film, no doubt, is completely different as a child, as Bill saw it as a child, as I saw it as a child. But viewing it today, it's difficult not to compare it to other fantasy films and stories that have come our way. 
which may or may not be fair. And this is the type of film I've said before, Bill, when we were covering Willow, where my child's mind would have filled out the story and all the in-betweens and taken the creatures and lands and magic and extrapolated them out and given them backgrounds and emotional depth. And I would have imaginative attachment to every detail. But today there was an emotional weight for me that was missing during this rewatch. And that's simply because there is no complexity to any of the relationships in the movie for me. Uh, Everything's on the surface. Now, I loved Fizzgig, the furball pet of Kira. I absolutely love the Landstriders. I think they're completely badass. I really enjoyed the shots of the podling jungle forest where we see Jen and meet Kira for the first time. I also liked Agra. Uh, you mentioned this, Bill. Agra's orrery is what it's called. It's the that mechanical mobile of the uh, solar system in this fantastical universe. Those were highlights for me. I love the idea of the movie, the ideas behind this movie, but not everything translated to the screen. And I'll get to that point again later, because when you have such a rich fantasy tale to tell, the journey from script and or story to screen, is it's really hard. Uh, but the conceptualization is amazing. In the end, I, I still like this movie, but it was such a it's, a, it's a fever dream, and I don't know how much I got out of it. I'm just conflicted. Where are you at with your initial thoughts, Bill Bent? Yeah, for me, yes. The narration at the beginning of the movie is key to understanding what this movie is about. As soon as I listened to it, I was like, okay, this is all going to make sense from here on out. So that was huge. Watching it this time, I was definitely more fascinated with the puppetry than the movie itself. I totally agree with your saying. After you get that jump of all the information of the story of what the movie is going to be about in the first 10 minutes, it's almost too simple. Actually got a little boring to me. And you said it. It's only an hour and 33 minutes. But visually, I was loving it. The sets were so alive. There was always so much movement. And I think, too, just my love of Jim Henson, everything that he's done and Thank you for breaking down everything. Like Emmett Honor, Stud Band Christmas. Oh, God, that was such a family staple for yeah. the longest time. And even Fraggle Rock, even when I was supposed to be too old for Fraggle Rock. God, I love that show. Mm-hmm. So for this, and it's so dark. It really is so dark. And Jim Henson thought like, hey, kids need to be scared about this. Right. And I'm watching this going, yeah, my kids aren't watching this anytime soon. It's freaky and That really just brought about the memories of me watching in the theater and how many times I was scared and frightened of all this going on, but fascinated at the same time. Just all the characters that we were introduced to, I thought were great. You mentioned them to the Landstriders, and I remember that being part of the documentary too, everything that they had to do to make those come alive. Fizzgig, yes, he was hilarious. He's your like Mm R2-D2, a ton of fun. But yeah, I really thought watching it again, I thought I was going to be questioning the plot. I really was. I was like, all right, is this going to make sense now? Because I just, like I said, I just remember all those years ago, just asking all these questions, what's going on? But no, it really, it really does lay it out. You just got to pay attention in the beginning. It lays it out all right there. The first 10 minutes, this is what we got to do. But then I felt like nothing really happened after that. And I was just more visually excited than stimulated story-wise. But like you too, I still did enjoy the film. I just wish there was a little bit more to it. I can understand trying to make this because you're so concerned about bringing the film out visually that sometimes the story does kind of take a back seat. And I think this is definitely an example of it. 
But because it's Jim Henson, in a sense, I give it a pass. Like Jim Henson was definitely one of those people when I heard he passed away, that crushed me. That was soul crushing Mm -hmm. that day when I heard that. Yeah. I remember I was at University of Miami when I heard about it and yeah, I really wanted to cry that day. That hurt. He's such a part of my childhood. And uh, this movie's a part of it too. So that kind of gives it a little help. Gives it a little help. Yeah. uh, Thanks for sharing all that. I I totally agree. And can't argue with the fact that it, it this film is wonderful to look at. It's wonderful to look at. And if you can just get lost in the scenery, you'll definitely enjoy it. But uh yeah, let's get we'll we'll get into it a little bit more depth here. Some some favorite scenes and moments. All right. Yes. What are some favorite scenes and moments you have about the Dark Crystal? Well, I'm gonna start with this particular scene. I'm calling it three different things. I'm calling it the Enchanted Jungle Forest slash meeting Kira slash dream fasting okay (laughs) now at this point in the story i'm skipping a little ways ahead here jen our gelfling protagonist is on his hero's journey he's still a little bit confused as to where he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do but he has a crystal shard and he knows he has to get it to the dark crystal And on his way, he at this point has met Agra, the astronomer and keeper of secrets, and from Agra has obtained the crystal shard. That's how he got it in the first place. However, just as Agra is about to tell him what he must do with the shard, their meet and greet is disrupted by the Gartham, the black crab-like creatures and what I call henchbugs instead of henchmen which are dispatched by the Skeksis to capture the Gelfling. So the Garthim, these gigantic and wonderfully designed, creepy-looking and very ineffective creatures, manage to get... I'm, I'm being a little bit silly here, but the Garthim, these crab-like creatures, they're all in black and just really gross-looking. They kidnap Agra, but Jen, the Gelfling, managed to, uh, to escape into the nearby forest. Jen watches from a distance as the Gartham destroy Agra's orrery and laboratory home. The next day, Jen finds himself traveling this exotic jungle forest where there are these creatures abound in all shapes and sizes, some emerging from the swamp, some crawling about. A giant Venus flytrap snags a slug. There's these butterfly creatures flying about. It's all so detailed and so rich in saturated color and we get it in full as the camera just slowly pans and lingers. The camera, as you mentioned, Bill, it was a good point. They really do take their time to focus on the set and production design of this film. And that is what kind of, upon this rewatch, watching it as an adult, makes it feel a bit slow because it's as if not much is happening. We're just looking at things. But when you're just looking at the detail of like, It's one of those magical moments where you go, how did they do this? And that's when you know you're watching magic. That's the magic of filmmaking. And the Dark Crystal provides that in spades, especially in for me, in my opinion, in this particular scene. So we see Jen, the Gelfling, sitting alone, pondering and contemplating to self what to do with the crystal shard. Then he hears a disturbance as if someone or something is close, and he goes to investigate. And when looking into the open trunk of a tree of some sort, Suddenly, Fizzgig, the furball, jumps out and roars as best as he can. He's this tiny little furball, the little pet belonging to Kira, who we're now introduced to, which is a surprise because Jen the Gelfling felt as though he was the only Gelfling remaining on this planet. 
that most of the Gelfling had been killed, if not all of them except for himself, had been killed in a previous war with the Skeksis. But here's Kira and her little pet Fizgig. Now, Kira emerges from the back, the lush background and tells her pet friend Fizgig to calm down. In her native tongue, Jen speaks the native tongue of the podling, which we learn these podlings are the, the residents of this particular forest. And Kira is a friend. She befriends Jen quite quickly. She reaches out to help Jen from the muddy puddle where he fell into after being scared by Fizgig initially. And now when Jen grabs Kira's hand, her helping hand, all of a sudden they enter into what's called a dream fast. They are physically connected and share each other's memories. We see them seeing each other's origin story. Jen being raised by the mystics and Kira losing her mother to the Gartham and then being raised by the podlings in this forest. And they come out of the dream fest when they let go of each other's hand. So I, I actually liked that sequence and it was a little bit strange because you hear the voiceover of both Jen and Kira and they're kind of cross-talking. They're talking over one another, but they're sharing their memories and at the same time in real time going, oh no, we're dream fasting. This is what's happening right now. It's very, it's fascinating. But it's, I like the concept of it. And this is a little bit of kind of a background I was seeking in the first part of the film because we get dropped into the middle of the story and I have nothing to hold on to. I haven't grown with these characters. I I have not attached to these characters emotionally, and that's kind of what was missing for me in this movie. But at least here in this dream fasting sequence, when we get a little bit of their origin, we understand how Jen was somewhat attached or connected to his master mystic and how Kira was raised to these podlings. And so we're a little bit more sympathetic to their story and how they had found families and had lost their parents in the war with the Skeksis. So I thought that was really cool. And Kira is helping Jen out of this puddle by we learned that Kira can talk to the animals and she kind of calls out to this puddle monster that we learn is called a Nebri, which lifts Jen out of the puddle. And it's just cool creature effects and cool puppetry. And it's kind of gross and beautiful at the same time. And the conceptual design is amazing. The creature design, like I mentioned, and we get this philosophical and kind of, well, very mystical and spiritual connection between all beings on this planet, which I appreciate in the story. And we get, yeah, Jen, Jen finding a new friend to join him on his hero's journey. Yeah, I just liked the scene. It was cool to look. It was really, really beautiful. No, that was a good call. I almost put that down as one of my favorite scenes, but I didn't know how to break it down. So I just kind of <laughs> left it alone. But it does make me think of one of the things I did like about the movie when Jen initially goes on this journey by himself and instead of him talking out loud, that's something you don't see a lot of until he runs into Kira and then they have that whole backstory. And I remember watching it thinking, I might need to watch this scene again just so I can concentrate on what Kira's saying at one point and concentrate on what right. Jen's saying at one point. But it comes across exactly what you need to know, how they got into this situation and how they finally meet. It is effective. Good story device. Absolutely. Cool concept that they put in there. It's interesting you bring up that we hear Jen's thoughts. I, I appreciate it and I appreciate what you're saying about it. I, I found it distracting, though, at first because we're used to at this point seeing Jen's mouth move when he's speaking. And then all of a sudden we hear his voice, but he's no longer moving his mouth. And I was like, okay, you quickly understand that we're hearing his thoughts, but it's a little off-putting in the moment because his voice, when we're hearing the thoughts, doesn't have enough of a 
like an affectation or a um like a reverb on it or echo effect on the voice where we like that denotes that we're hearing his thoughts does that make sense it sounds like the yes. same audio track so it's like oh wait he's not his moose mouth isn't moving but he's talking oh it's his thoughts it, it did Sometimes get me we're hearing yeah go ahead it no it did get me at first too i was like why is it oh we're listening to his thoughts but then i appreciate it they were doing it that way instead instead of going where am i supposed to be going sure i get that why right on what's your first uh yeah sorry man i'm talking over you it's like we're dream fasting right now yes <laughs> Uh, so for me, uh, my first thing is it's a moment, but the moment's separated into three different parts. Because what I loved was I never realized, especially the first time I saw it, and I just like how they did it even on this watch, is how connected the Skeksis and the Mystics were to one another. Because in the beginning of the movie, we have the Emperor of the Skeksis, and he's on his deathbed, and he ends up dying and crumbles, which was very freaky scene too. Definitely goes in the scary freaky scene for a young kid. No doubt. And then we have the leader of the mystics and he just happens to die also. And on his deathbed, he tells Jen, yeah, I should have mentioned this earlier, but you need to go fulfill a prophecy and go find a shard and stick in the crystal or else things are going to go from bad to worse. Coincidence, they both just happen to die at the same time, not thinking of this at all, especially as a kid. But then later in the movie, one of the Skeksis who gets uh, ostracized is Chamberlain, and he's kind of been following the Gelflings around to try to maybe capture them. Not a good dude. And he gets stabbed in the hand with the crystal, and he starts to bleed. And then we cut to the Mystics, who are now on their way to the castle, because they need to get there before the suns converge. And then you see one of the mystic's hands start to bleed. And then you're like, oh, that's interesting. What does mm -hmm. that mean? And then later in the movie, when Kira gets kidnapped and they're going to suck away her essence and she escapes and they end up killing the, I think it's the scientist Skeksis and they throw him into the pit, which is lava and he burns to a crisp. And then we cut to the mystics who are traveling across the desert to get to the castle and you just see one of them burn up mm -hmm. and it's hilarious because all the mystics literally stop for half a second look at what happened and then just keep moving forward yeah. <laughs> right. and then you're like oh they're paired up there's nine left of the skeksis nine left of the mystics and then you see at the at the end that they literally combine into one. I didn't realize how connected they were, that they really were. What happens to one happens to the other. I just found that kind of cool. I really like that aspect of this story. And we'll get into it a little bit in Facts and Trivia because Jim Henson really did a lot of work in developing the lore of this world. And a big part of it is the spiritual and mystical connection between all of these characters and beings and species on this planet. Everything is connected. We see that the Skeksis and Mystics each have their own counterpart within the other race. As you said, if one passes away, then their counterpart in the other race passes away. We see what I just described, the connection between Jen and Kira, both being Gelflings. As soon as they touch hands, they're able to share one another's dreams and histories. And that's very cool to me. Uh, I want to know more. 
about that. And all of it is connected by the dark crystal. We see the Skeksis within the castle of the crystal. When they look at the giant dark crystal, they see visions of what is happening across the planet with the Gelfling coming to fulfill his prophecy. When we see Jen, the Gelfling, looking at his small crystal shard in his hand, he can see the Skeksis and what they're up to, or visions of his own. So everything seems to be connected. You know, I'm always, as an adult, searching for some sort of depth or maybe explanation, but in this film, there's a lot left to your interpretation, and you are just meant to understand certain things. And I can see as a child being thoroughly confused or going, I don't know what's going on. It just kind of looks cool. But now as an adult, I have an appreciation for the undertones of, or overtones, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but uh, of the mystical nature of this. And again, we'll get into it in the research from the facts and trivia. Moving on. All right, what do you have next for scenes or moments? Yeah, I'm just calling it the Landstriders, man. Absolutely. At this point in the film, Jen and Kira have found some respite in the village of the Podlings in the uh, Podling Forest. Uh, and the Podlings, I love these guys and gals. They're a race of like these small gnome-like creatures. You know what they look like, Bill Bant? They look exactly like the little troll dolls with spiky hair from the 80s. You remember? They were naked little oh, yeah. trolls that had the spiky hair. They look exactly like those little lucky troll dolls, but without the hair. That's what the podlings look like. So the podlings and Kira and Jen, Jen playing his little double pipe instrument, they're all feasting and dancing when, of course, the evil Agartharim interrupt the party and Jen and Kira make a run for it, narrowly escaping. Actually, they escape with the help of the Skeksy Chamberlain, who, as Bill mentioned, is in Skeksy Outcast. And he is now here in the podling forest and he has his own agenda. And then Jen and Kira, the next morning, discover some ancient ruins that reveal the full prophecy of what the Gelfling is to do with the Crystal Shard. And after reading the glyphs on the ruins, the Skeksy Chamberlain shows up once again and tells the Gelflings that he wishes to make peace between the Gelflings and the Skeksis, and that they should go back with him to the Castle of the Crystal. But they don't. They don't buy what he's selling. And they run off. They know what they must do. They have to get to the Castle of the Crystal on their own as soon as they can. So Kira, in her native tongue once again, taught to her by the podlings, she calls out to the Landstriders. And the Landstriders are like these eight foot tall, if not taller. They look like bats with catfish faces standing on high four-legged stilts. It's an incredible design. They're insane looking and really cool. And they're these long, extended, thin four legs that these creatures stand on look like they have wings on them or like sails on them. They're really cool. So they come out of the forest at Kira's beckoning. And so then Jen and Kira and Fizgig, let's not forget about Fizgig, they all hop onto two separate landstriders and the tall landstriders are able to cross large distances with their large strides in almost no time. So he watches they haul ass across the jungle riding the Landstriders, and, and it's just freaking cool. I love the design of the Landstriders when they appeared. That was like something I remembered. As soon as they showed up, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember these guys. Very cool. And it was sad when uh, they kind of bite the dust. There's another scene that occurs in between, but I'll just skip ahead to when we see the Landstriders. It's just really shot really well. It looks completely real where they're coming down like it's like Irish countryside. I, I believe they did shoot some of this in Scotland. Is it Scotland or Ireland? They I believe it's Scotland. In, yeah. Like Scotland, Northern yes. England as well. Yeah. 
you see these scri- these striders, these land striders just coming down the countryside with Kira and Jen on their backs, and then they end up fighting off the Garthim at the uh, mouth of the Castle of the Crystal. There's like a battle sequence between the land striders and the Garthim, and it's all really cool shit. <laughs> just as fun to watch. Really crazy, weird creatures doing battle. And you're just going, who thought up this stuff? Credit to, uh, I believe, was it Brian Froud and uh, the imagination of Jim Henson? So, yeah, Landstriders, all about them. Yes, I agree. Landstriders fucking rock. And it's so hard to explain what they look like. I think you did a pretty good job. And they're just beautiful. They're white, pure white. Yes, thank you. Yeah, But, yeah, the catfish cool. face is perfect. Kind of bat-like legs. And, oh, my God, just, the people had a puppetry, those. Hats off to them. That must have been a nightmare. They are cool. They're definitely one of the coolest fantasy creatures mm-hmm. that have ever come across in film. There's just nothing like them. And their movement is just so graceful and they're so fast. And uh, jump in a battle with the odds against them. They're very loyal, too. So I can't say enough about the Landstriders. Definitely one of the yeah, coolest would, creatures in the movie. Definitely. And they got great names. Landstriders. Yep. I mean, it's totally appropriate, but it just sounds cool. Sounds cool. So I encourage listeners that haven't seen the film, or even if you have, Google it, look them up again, check them out. The design is amazing. Uh, So for me, just because this was a memorable scene for me as a kid watching the movie for the first time, and it was a line he used to use, trial by stone, trial by stone, Mm, trial by stone. (laughs) The trial by stone at the very beginning of the movie. Oh, yes. And so what happens, basically at the beginning of the movie, after the emperor of the Skeksis dies, um, it's time to decide who the new emperor is going to be of the remaining Skeksis. So Chamberlain, who gets ostracized and traumatized me, is one of the two that wants to become the new emperor, and he tries to grab the scepter, and then there's another Skeksis, I can't remember, the name is fleeting right now, which one it is, also wants to be the emperor. I think he's just the known as like the general. He does general. have a name, but it's not spoken in the film. Okay. But I think he's supposed to be the general. Yeah. yeah. Ha ha! He's got the really deep voice. And once again, great, Bill. Thank you. That's great. Keep talking like the Skeksis <laughs> for the rest of the pod. It might be annoying if I do another 20 minutes. Mm. So in order to decide who the emperor is, the rest of the Skeksis, trial by stone, trial by stone. And you're like, what the hell is trial by stone? And in the middle of their castle, in the main room, there's literally a stone that comes up from the ground. And up from the ground, there's these two swords. So you're thinking, oh, the two of them are going to do a battle against each other with these swords. That's not really what happens. They take the swords and they have to basically cut through the stone. And it's weird the way because they're almost facing off against each other, but they're not meaning to hit each other. They're actually trying to hit the stone. And the Skeksis are almost divided into groups of who wants who to win. So they take the huge swings at the stone and, you know, everyone gets excited. Oh, nice, nice, nice. So you hit the stone. Yes. Everyone gets all crazy. And then eventually the general splits the stone in half. And that's when Chamberlain is declared ostracized for losing. And that's when the traumatic scene is when they basically corner him against the wall and basically strip him of all his garments and leave him there and then tell him, get out. And then we have the new emperor. 
I just always love trial by stone. Just hearing <laughs> that always stuck with me. Trial by stone, trial by stone. And just every one of them says it before it happens. So it's just, it's not necessarily a favorite moment. It's just a memorable moment for me from the film. I totally get it, Bill. That's hilarious. I love your impersonations of the Skeksis, especially, you know, with Chamberlain, who plays such a major role in the film and his whimpering the entire time, which the general calls out. They're walking in the hallway uh, somewhat before this, and he's like, I, I hate that whimpering. I hate your whimpering. Because the entire time, Chamberlain is making this whimpering sound, which is something like, yep. mm-hmm. I thought for sure, going into watching this, that was going to drive me crazy. But he doesn't do it as much as I thought. You don't really see him mm. as much as I thought. So it didn't actually bother me. So I was like, oh, okay, that's good. I totally understand why this scene is memorable for you. I like the idea of the trial by stone. I had it in my complaints, however, because I was like, this is a pretty simple way of deciding who is going to rule your race of beings. I get it. You simply cut at a stone and the person that is strong enough or displays their prowess in a way that they slice the stone in half first is then deemed worthy to rule. And I was like, that's a strange way to decide your ruler. But it still looked cool, and it was still fun, no doubt about it. So I I, I totally understand the entertainment value in the trial by stone. Not a great scene, just a memorable scene for right. me. <laughs> I had to bring it up. Totally. I just wanted to do trial by stone! Yes, which is totally worth it. Uh, well, similarly, next, I can't call it a favorite scene, But I found it impactful because this movie, as we've mentioned numerous times, is dark and there are very scary and very creepy moments. And this scene I simply entitled Podling Torture. It's disturbing, but I thought it was really effective. In this particular scene, well, first of all, let me just backtrack and say it it took me a moment to realize that the slaves that the Skeksis keep are actually podlings that have had their life juice, otherwise known as their living essence, squeezed out of them. So they are basically zombie-like shells of their former selves doing the bidding of the Skeksis as slaves. So rewinding a bit, we are deep below in the castle of the crystal where the Skeksi reside, and we are in the Skeksi's scientist's chamber where he is keeping several podlings captive from the prior Garthrum raid on the podling village. The scientist Skeksis takes one of the podlings from his cage and places him into a chair with metal restraints, saying, This won't hurt. We just want to drain your living essence. Jesus. I'm like, what? (laughs) So we see a couple of other podlings already restrained in their chairs on other side, and the podling is hooked up to some kind of intravenous hose that leads into a laboratory flask. And we soon understand that the scientist, Skeksis, has developed a way to harness the rays of the dark crystal above, way up above in the in the castle. They harness the rays of the crystal that shoot down into the main shaft of the castle, which then bounce off of a reflector mechanism, which redirects these energy beams, shooting them directly into the faces of the restrained podlings. We quickly see that this energy drains the podlings of their living essence. We see the podling become emaciated and gray. Literally, their faces deflate. And the podling's living essence is transformed into this liquid form that is siphoned into this lab flask. Now, meanwhile, we see the beam focused on the podling's face. 
as he is frightened and frozen. It's really scary. And you hear the scientist go, and now the beam will rid you of your fear, your thought, your vital essence. Super creepy. The scientist then has the new Skeksy Emperor drink the podling's life essence from the flask, which in turn makes him younger. We see as the years are taken off the Skeksis general's, I should say, emperor's face and hands, you see the wrinkles disappear from his face and hands, but then soon his physical aging returns. The de-aging is only temporary, and the scientist is groveling with his apologies to the emperor, stating that the life essence of a Gelfling works better. The whole scene is sadistic and dark, but again, one of the more effective scenes in the movie, poor podlings. And of course, uh, it's a foreshadowing device because, spoiler alert, they get Kira in this chair, this torture device to have her living essence squeezed out of herself in order for the emperor to get her living essence in to make him appear younger. And uh, it's, yeah, it's upsetting. But what it did for me was I, I've already revealed one of my major complaints being the lack of complexity in the relationships and my emotional attachment or connection to these characters and the relationships. But in this particular scene, why I'm calling it out is because I immediately became sympathetic towards the podlings and really felt like if I didn't already, but just felt much more so that the Skeksis were truly evil. Like they're really, really bad. Oh yeah. They're sucking the life out of these small, innocent troll-like creatures and it looks painful. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the scene because I couldn't because I felt like it was too traumatizing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because you said it so seriously. But it's true. It's upsetting. <laughs> One of the things I always love about Jim Henson movies or even the Muppets is when you see like a full body of the Muppet because they're always so adorable looking. And then you mm -hmm. have these three little podlings sitting in the chairs and you can see them like trying to struggle. And I just almost want to cry. Yeah. And then, bothersome. and then the fact that they're like, I'm going to suck out your life essence. And you're like, oh, my God, I cannot watch. <laughs> Even as an adult, I'm like, part of me almost cannot watch it. But it is very effective. It really shows, like you said, that the Skeksis are pure evil. They really did break them in half into good and bad. And this just shows right. how bad they are. And the, the fact that they don't even die. They just become zombie slaves and yeah, now just do exactly. the bidding afterwards. I'm hoping they reverse the process when it's all said and done. I just feel so bad because you just see him all throughout the movie serving these Skeksis. And it's like, how did this all happen? And then watching the process is so traumatizing. It's so I, I don't know as a kid how I got through this. I really don't. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the darkest moments of the movie. For sure, no doubt. And we've seen this, I don't know if I would call it a trope, maybe a trope in fantasy films where an evil king or emperor or empress is trying to retain their youth and is feeding off the young in some way in order yes. to do so. And that is the same concept here. So that concept unto itself isn't entirely original. It's just the way that they're doing it and that the fact, the fact that we're seeing it. We're actually seeing the process. Yes. Which is really sadistic. So it's like they really went with the dark fantasy element here. Oh, man. Yeah. So for me, my final scene or moment is kind of the ending. So Jen and Kira get to the castle. They have the crystal shard that they're going to put right in, in there. And here comes the convergence of the suns and the Skeksis think, all right, we we made it. The Gelfing didn't make it. He's not got the, the shard in. 
And then poor old Fizzgig sees Kira and he rolls over to her. I love the way he moves. That He literally rolls like a little yeah. ball, a little fuzzball. And he starts barking at Kira and it catches the attention of the Skeksis. And they're like, oh, my God, the Gelflings are here. We must kill them. They send the the beetle crab creatures. What are they called? Oh, Gartham. Yeah, yes, Gartham. Gartham after them. And Jen jumps off one of the ledges onto the dark crystal itself. And you think, all right, here we go. He's going to put the shard in and everything's going to be safe. But unfortunately, he drops it onto the ground right in the middle of the Skeksis. And you're like, oh, shit. And one of the Skeksis go to pick it up. And here comes Fizzgig in for the rescue, bites the hand of the Skeksis so he can't pick it up. And then the Skeksis takes poor Fizzgig and throws him over the, the side of the pit where the Dark Crystal stands. They killed poor Fizzgig. And the, another <laughs> traumatiz- there's so many goddamn traumatizing moments in this movie. <laughs> yeah. But we do find out that he's okay later. Thank God. He, I think he falls onto the reflector. Right. That's right. So then Kira comes swooping in and she grabs the shard and she's there. She is in the middle of the Skeksis and she's trying to hold them off with the shard. And Jen's up on the crystal and he's like, don't harm her. Please don't harm her. And the Skeksis are like, oh, if you give us the shard, we'll let her live. And Jen's like, yeah, just do it. Kira knows better. She knows she's screwed. And she throws the shard to Jen, and while she does that, one of the Skeksis has a knife, stabs her. Her death is so cool, the way she, like, bends back. and mm. There's something very elegant about it that I liked, coming from a puppet. Totally agree. Yes. That's an effective moment. I totally agree. That was very noticeable. And she falls to her death, and of course, Jen is traumatized, and literally at that point, all the three sons have aligned, and the light comes down onto the dark crystal. Oh, crap. Are we too late? But then Jen takes the shard, jams it into the crystal itself, then has just like the blowback where he literally gets knocked off the crystal. At that moment, the mystics show up and they circle around the crystal itself. And then beams of light hit them and it comes out of their mouth and it grabs the Skeksis and it pulls them all in. And then they make these crazy glowing almost like godlike, ghost-like creatures that are so bizarre looking. And then the whole castle itself turns white and, God, everything is saved. But as a kid, it was still mind-blowing because you're just like, what the hell is happening? Because, of course, I didn't understand the split, that they were two pieces of the same person. Right. I was about to explain that for our audience just in case very quickly as humanly possible. And then just watching the... I'm not even sure what the new creatures are called, to be honest. When, when I can tell you. Joined. I was about to tell you that as oh, well. Oh, please. <laughs> yeah. I could see elements of both of them in it. Because I remember the first time, I think I, I was looking at it wrong. And then watching this time, I'm like, oh, yeah, I wasn't actually looking at their face. I think I was looking at his shoulder or something. I don't remember what it was. But they fortunately bring Kira back to life. And everything is everything is good at the end. It was an interesting ending, and it was cool that Mm -hmm. Jen fulfills his quest or the prophecy, and everything will hopefully become good on the planet from here on out. Yeah, as we see in the end, I mean, it's visually stunning. It's a pretty, what's the, I'm trying to think of the right descriptor here, but uh, it's a bombastic ending. It has a lot, there's a lot going on. And I can imagine as a kid just going, well, this looks really cool. I don't know what's happening, but it's pretty cool. And I can understand a little bit why I didn't remember a lot of the plot of this film, because as a child, it's hard to digest 
the spiritual concepts here, because what I was going to explain for the audience and those that don't know what is explained in the narration is that a thousand years previous, this dark crystal, uh, you know, existed. All life on this planet was living in peace and harmony and everything was lush and green. And then one day the crystal splintered. I don't know how or why, but a shard of the crystal broke off. And when that happened, two races of species appeared, one being the Skeksis and one being the Mystics. And they both share some similar traits, but the Skeksis remained in the Castle of the Crystal and the Mystics went off to live in the Village of the Stones. And since then, they've been at odds and been at war. And we understand that there were other creatures that existed before these two these races appeared as a result of the crystal splintering. So in the end, what Bill is describing here is once the shard is replaced and put back into the dark crystal, then these two races, we see them come together at what is called the Great Conjunction, which is the three suns lining up and they shine the light. The sun shines the power of the three suns upon the dark crystal, which emits this energy beam into the mystics and the Skeksis, bringing them back together as one. And in the lore, if you know the, I guess, from the books, and then we'll get into the prequel series that is now on Netflix, etc. But the mystics, their actual name are the Uru. So you have the Skeksis and the Uru. And when these two races come back together, they are unified. And we find out the big reveal is that they were actually one. They were one race that was divided into two when the crystal was splintered. So now that they've been reunited, the Skeksis and the Uru, they are called the Urskex, the combination of Uru and Skeksis. Made sense to me. I understood that at nine years old. No freaking way. And this is, again, I'm going to get into, it's part of the reason why I love this stuff and hate it at the same time is that there's it's so rich in lore, but we don't see or understand some of this it's explained in other ways, and that'll get into my additional questions for you, Bill Band. I think we called out some great scenes here. Uh, are we All ready right. to move into the next segment? Now let's take a quick break to hear from our friends over at the Docking Bay 77 podcast. Hi, I'm Dayton, the host of the Docking Bay 77 podcast. We talk about everything from anthrax to the Muppets to West Side Story. All right, boys, buckle up, because we have hit the bottom <laughs> of the barrel. He slaughters all the Tusken Raiders. The fact that she stays by his side, that, that tells me everything I need to know about these women that write letters to serial killers in prison. You know, it makes it made sense, you know. Mopey, young, sad, always dumped Tim. That was the theme song, you know. <laughs> when you listened, Tim, did you have the volume on? Or? Oh, God. Uh, the witches are definitely much more nightmare fuel, but the fact that they look like the Texas Chainsaw centerfolds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if Django Fett is so awesome, he's hired to be cloned. Why the hell isn't he doing the job? He's like, my Question. client's getting impatient. Well, then, what you slack ass mother? Why don't you do it? You know, you're just <laughs> check us out on Apple Podcast, Good Pods, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Now back to our show. Let us do that then. Let, let's talk about some Swiss cheese and complaints. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have shard holes. Yes, and if it doesn't have shard holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Leading up to this, building up to this, I want to hear some of these complaints. For me, I did find the character voices grating at times. You know, you mentioned that Chamberlain's whimpering wasn't as annoying as you thought it might be upon this rewatch. I thought it was a bit much, it seems. I wasn't overwhelming. What did get to me at times was the character of Agra. Agra is what seems to be a female version of... We don't know what species she is or what kind no, of creature yeah. she is. We just know that, again, she's an astronomer of some sort that has the knowledge of the prophecy, and she is the keeper of the crystal shard. And she's pretty loud and obnoxious in this growling type of voice the entire time. I actually thought she sounded like Yoda at first in a little bit. And I was like, oh, is Frank Oz voicing her? But she, he is not. Because she does a thing where she's talking to Jen in a cryptic type of way, but not really saying anything at all. And in between her sentences, she would go, hmm, and such and such and such. Hmm. Like Yoda kind of does when he's talking to Luke. I thought that was kind of funny. But yeah, the Skeksis are pretty loud and creaky and shrill. There's just, there's a lot of yelling from the creatures in this movie. So that was grating on my nerves a little bit of, a little bit. No, that's a valid complaint. I really thought for sure it was going to be more bothersome to me, but for some reason it wasn't. Um, so for my first complaint, I didn't really have any Swiss cheese because now that I understand the plot, it is kind of simple. But I, I found it funny is, okay, so you're one of the Skeksis. Are you really that excited to be an emperor of nine other people? considering Except, yeah. they broke up like a yeah. thousand years ago and it sounded like there were hundreds and thousands of these creatures and then thousands of Skeksis and now you're down to technically nine and then the trial by stone. So now you're losing one. So you're the emperor of eight. <laughs> I would almost just be like Chamberlain wants it. Yeah, you know what? You can have it. I've not gone through the chance of doing a trial by stone and being ostracized over eight people. A little too much for me. But I'm glad they had the trial by stone. <laughs> trial by stone. Every time you were you're saying that trial by stone, trial, trial I keep by thinking, stone. I keep, all I can hear is swallow your soul. I'll swallow your soul. Yeah, that's true. So great point, Bill. Solid complaint. And that's just an overall overriding issue I've had is that what is the purpose of the Skeksis outside of simply existing and trying to retain their life and youth? 
because we understand that each of these Skeksis have some sort of station. We know there's Chamberlain. We know that, I guess, there's a general, there's a scientist, uh, there's a high priest. There's different positions, but what do they really want outside of? We don't actually see them ravaging the land. We understand that's what they did, according to the narration in the beginning. But their only purpose is in this story is to exist as bad guys. So it's kind of like we just don't have much other motivation for them or character development. It's everything's on the surface. Right. Because when they do that, like you said, the trial of stones, like, why do you even want to be emperor? You can kind of order the other eight Skeksis around. They have to kind of do what you tell them to do, which is what? Just hang out in the castle and eat. Yep. There's just not not a lot of depth there. Anywho. When Jen goes to Agra's orrery and astronomy laboratory mm-hmm. and Agra comes out with the box of shards, which is kind of funny. She just has a, all these shards that it's it's a bit of a test. She scatters these shards about and it's up to Jen to determine which of the shards is the actual crystal shard he needs that fits into the hole within the dark crystal. So... This is where, again, there's the spiritual nature comes in, this mystical connection between beings, because Jen, being a Gelfling raised by the mystics, now kind of goes into a trance-like state and hears and or sees the mystics doing their choral bellowing, the oh. Well done. That was good. Yeah. And he realized, oh, that means I need to play my double pipe instrument. And that will then highlight the crystal shard that I need to choose from the several shards before me. There's a bit of a stretch there where I was going, oh, so now Jen is somehow connected to the mystics through music or what I was calling dream hearing of the chorus of the mystics. It was a little bit of a stretch for me. Also, when the leader of the mystics tells him, oh, by the way, you have a prophecy to fulfill or else things are going to get worse. Maybe you could have gave him some sort of training. Ah, you nailed it. I literally have it written here. And that's exactly what I was going to say next. What this film was missing was a training montage. Yeah. We don't get a chance to grow along with Jen. We see through his dream fasting with Kira about how he was raised by the mystics, but we need to be there for that as an audience to kind of, you know, hold our hand or vice versa in, in with Jen, seeing how he was brought up by the mystics in order to see, oh, he has learned the ways of the mystics and has a way of reaching out to them through this kind of mystical connection, whether it be through consciousness or channeling or music. And we just didn't get that. So when it happens in the movie, it's just like, oh, this is very ethereal and uh, mystical, but it's just not, it's not grounded at all in anything. Yeah, I agree. For me, my next complaint, I was not happy with the fate of the Landstriders. No, <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, here they carry Jen and Kira all the way to the castle, and then they see the podlings are all bounded up. They were going to become slaves and, and taken in. And then the Landstriders just, they jump in. They're outnumbered. They're outnumbered like 10 to 2. Oh, yeah. And Kira and Jen kind of leave them there. You got to help those guys out. You're going to get their asses kicked. Totally. So, and then the one, yeah, the one tumbles over the side and then the other one just gets just taken down. I was not happy with that. Great call. 
that was upsetting. As soon as it began, I was like, oh, they're going to die. And this is not right because they're the coolest creatures in this whole movie. Yeah. Like you said, they're kind of, they were heroic. They helped uh, our Gelflings, our protagonists, our heroes get across the land in, in quick time. And they served their purpose. And then just to then rush into battle at the Gelflings defense and die. And we don't even know if the Podlings just, get away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. It was like, we we barely knew you, Lance Striders. We barely, mm-hmm. we were just getting to know you and I loved you immediately and now you're gone. Yeah, because then fair. just Kira grabs Jen and they just jump over the side. Yeah. What happened to the Podlings? Oh, totally. Lance, yeah. Those Lance Striders might have died for nothing. That even makes it more upsetting. Right. Daniel Garthams. <laughs> All right. So you're getting your life essence sucked from you. Yes. Um, close your eyes, maybe? <laughs> Good idea. If you close your eyes, does that does that help or how does that work? But I was just like, stop staring at it, please. Yeah, guys, this came out in eighty two. Did they learn nothing from Raiders? The end of Raiders: of The Lost Ark in nineteen eighty one, the year before. Marion, close your eyes. Yeah, you can't look at it. I kept screaming on TV. Close your eyes. Just try it. You got nothing to lose besides your life essence. <laughs> So, yeah, I will now just touch upon my last complaint and overall complaint. And what I needed were more character motivations, uh, not just a mission statement or purpose for a character's journey or survival or saving the world. I wanted to know why the journey was so personal to them. I just wanted to get more personal. I wanted some stakes that I could relate to as an audience member. I mean, I can't really relate to having to save the world. Things like why does Jen really love Kira. I maybe more of an in-depth relationship between the two Gelflings. He's obviously moved by the fact that Kira is at least temporarily killed at the end. Again, why do the Skeksis ravage the land or why do they hate the mystics in the first place? Is do they need a reason? Maybe not. But I wanted, you know, I just like more more stuff. There was once a great war when the Skeksis wiped out the Gelflings, but why? Like in Willow, was it simply to prevent the actualization of a prophecy? Was that is that it? Is it just that simple? Are there any other levels to it? It just felt a bit sur- uh, superfluous to me. Uh, again, these are the bad guys. These are the good guys. The bad guys suck the life out of the planet, and there's infighting among them for power. The good guys have a spiritual connection to the planet and live in literal harmony. Hero must go on a journey of innocence to experience to fulfill a pr- prophecy to save the world. That's it. Did Jen learn anything along his journey? I don't know. I don't think so, but you get the idea. I was, it was just lacking in some developments and often a complaint you'll hear from me, but I just need some complexity within the relationships for me to establish an emotional connection and to actually feel. Now, as we've spoken about, there are truly scary, dark elements to this film that we feel on an emotional level. But outside of that, I wasn't feeling much else. I did not feel an emotional heft to this film. I wasn't connecting to it on that level. That's my overall complaint. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, because there is a prophecy a Gelfling will reconnect the crystal. Great. But in the way the movie plays out, it could almost be a podling could have put it together. Right. Why Jen? Like the Skeksis wiped out Gelflings. Yeah. So you would think there would be some kind of like emotional heft with Jen thinking, I'm going to get revenge for what these creatures have done to me. Yeah, he really doesn't have no arc. It's just straight, oh, I got to do this? Okay, here I go. Yeah. 
Oh, I ran into another Gelfling. Awesome. I'm not the only one. Still got to go put the shard in the crystal. Here we go. Yeah, they don't fall in love. There's no depth to that relationship. They're just connected because they're of the same race. There's just no, there are no levels. It's just the journey on the surface of it. And that's it. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And then here's my last complaint, which should not follow your complaint because it sounds so shallow. But when, <laughs> but when Jen's in Agra's lair, per se, and then um, we have the, the Garthams. Oh, the Gartham. Yeah, the Gartham. I always, come in. you know how I remember it is because I think of Wayne and Garth. Oh, okay. So yeah, I won't forget either. So then the Gartham come in to attack, and Jen escapes by jumping through the window and tumbles, 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 tumbles. When he finally gets up and looks back and sees Agra's place on fire, he's about six miles away. You're telling <laughs> he fell for like six totally. miles and survived all that? That's Damn. amazing. It's so true. He's really like, he is miles away. Oh, wow. He rolled a really, really long way. I know. Did he fall for like two days? Is that what happened? <laughs> That's really funny. I totally picked up on that. Silly, but it's true. It's totally true. All right, let's move on to Hey, it's that actor. All right. Which is going to be interesting since we technically don't have any actors. But um, in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo, which I guess would be in this case. So it's Hey, it's that actor. Who do we choose this week? This should be interesting. Bill Bant, our choice for Hey, it's that actor is Kieran Shaw. Kieran Shaw is an actor and stuntman, and he is a person of short stature, standing a bit over four feet tall, and he was the body double performing the roles of Jen, Kira, and the astronomer Augura, the Keeper of Secrets. So when you are watching these characters on screen, for the most part, they are being performed by puppeteers, such as Jim Henson and Frank Oz and others. And they are being voiced by voice actors. But from long shots, shots that were from a distance when we are seeing characters like the Gelflings, Jen and Kira move about, it is quite clear that it is a human being in a costume moving about and crawling about and jumping and running. And that was Kieran Shaw. So Kieran Shaw was born in Nairobi, Kenya. Kieran has either been an actor or stuntman in everything from Raiders of the Lost Ark to Return of the Jedi to Harry Potter to the Chronicles of Narnia to the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit trilogy to the most recent Star Wars sequels and the recent Star Wars television series Andor. This guy works. Kieran, here's a little trivia about Kieran. Kieran is a Guinness World Record holder as the shortest professional stuntman currently working in film since October 2003. I will just say right now that Kieran Shira is a short king. He is definitely a short king. He was Elijah Wood's scale double in all three Lord of the Rings films. Uh, because of his overall diminutive size, versatility, and willingness, Kieran Shaw is in high demand as a prospective stuntman double for long shots and action scenes. I had mentioned that for the, the long shots here in Dark Crystal. Uh, he auditioned for the part of R2-D2 in Star Wars, uh, losing out to Kenny Baker. And finally, Kieran wrote a book in 2006 named Small Voice, Large Thoughts. He's 66 years old today and still working. I was going to say, how old? We appreciate you, Kieran Shaw. Yeah, 66. 
Still doing it. Let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about the Dark Crystal to share? Absolutely. Let's get into a little BTS behind the scenes. The film's conceptual roots lay in Henson's short-lived The Land of Gorch, a reoccurring adult puppetry skit that appeared in season one of Saturday Night Live featuring Jim Henson's Muppets, which also took place in an alien world with no human characters. Bill Bant, I did not know about this. I either forgot about it or never saw it. The fact that there was a reoccurring skit on the first year of Saturday Night Live that featured Jim Henson's puppets in a a world and story called The Land of Gorch. And you can see like a photo of one of these Muppets with uh, Lily Tomlin. And you're just like, it's like, what? This goes back to 75? Like, it's crazy. So that's where a lot of the conceptual roots for the Dark Crystal kind of began with these this sort of dark type of creature puppets. Uh, according to co-director Frank Oz, Henson's intention, as Bill Bant mentioned earlier, was to get back to the darkness of the original Grimm's fairy tales, as in the Brothers Grimm as Jensen believed that it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid. He was he felt that it was healthy for kids to experience the fear. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. At some point, you're going to have to face it. Something bad's going to happen. Oh, just way too much dramatic stuff in that one. He piled into it. But <laughs> I get it. I get it. Totally. Now, when I read it, it made sense. All right. Uh, so Henson wrote the movie's original outline while snowed in at a hotel. So back on February 6, 1978, Henson and his daughter Cheryl were forced to spend the night at Howard Johnson's at JFK Airport in New York. With little else to do, Henson hand-wrote multiple pages of the movie's outline for screenwriter David Odell to work with. Awesome. There you go. I need to be stuck on a blizzard so I can go back to getting some writing done, I guess. I love that the backstory of that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Pre-production work revolved around Brian Froud's designs without a f- finished script. When Froud originally presented Jim Henson with concept drawings for the crystal, Henson seemed perplexed. When Froud asked why, Henson said he had no idea what the designs were for. Froud had misunderstood Henson during early production conversations. Henson intended to call the movie The Dark Chrysalis, referring to the Skeksis' dominance over the world. Henson, however, loved the concept art that Froud presented and integrated the idea of the crystal into the storyline. So it wasn't even Henson's intention to have a crystal in the movie. That's hilarious. Until Froud presented him with misinterpreted conceptual designs. All right, since you brought up uh, Brian Froud. So he designed the Skeksis to be part reptile, part bird, and part dragon. And then the look of the podlings... What did you say you thought they looked like? Oh, yeah, the uh, the trolls. The troll dolls from the yes. 80s. That we yeah, the naked little troll dolls. He based them on the look of potatoes. <laughs> little potato people. I love it. No, no question about it. That's great. At the time it was made, The Dark Crystal is hailed as the only live action movie in which a human character makes no appearance. With the exception of some wide shots of the Gelflings, as we've mentioned, it would have been the first live action movie where, yeah, no human actors appeared. Yeah, I really had to think about that when I read that. It's like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So, you know, talk about the, the puppeteering and just all the work that went into this. So it took six people to work the animatronic Skeksis creatures. Two were stuffed in the bird-like body while four performed on a platform underneath the surface. 
So um, one group of performers worked at, for at least six months before shooting even began to work all that out. And um, yeah, because another thing with all those sets that you see, they're all built like four feet off the ground. So you can get the puppeteers underneath to work their magic. So just the logistics of just getting this movie made, just crazy, crazy. Can't believe they got it done. No question about it. How much blood, sweat, and tears goes into creating those sets and to actually have so many operators behind the scenes working the animatronics and doing the puppetry. It's really cool. Uh, That's why I also would love to see the documentary to see how it was all done. And, uh, you know, I've watched plenty of behind the scenes of the Star Wars trilogy, the original classic trilogy. And of course, we have the visuals in our minds of, of Frank Oz below the stage operating Yoda. It's just really cool. And that's kind of similar to what they were doing here with these puppets. But they're giant. They're giant puppets. This is 1982. We had not seen anything quite like this. It was really unique Mm because even watching it now, it's again, you're just going, how the hell did they do this? These puppets are enormous and so detailed and and they move in certain ways where it's like, yeah, this is very impressive. Anyway, going to get into some deep stuff. This is kind of cool. Most of... The philosophical undertones of the film were inspired from Jane Roberts' Seth material. Henson kept multiple copies of the book Seth Speaks and insisted that Brian Froud and screenwriter David O'Dell read it prior to collaborating for the film. The Seth material is a collection of writing dictated by Jane Roberts to her husband, From late 1963 until her death in 1984, Roberts claimed the words were spoken by a discarnate entity named Seth. The material is regarded as one of the cornerstones of New Age philosophy and the most influential channeled text of the post-World War II New Age movement. It has been written that the Seth books were instrumental in bringing the idea of channeling to a broad public audience. In summary... The core teachings of the Seth material are based on the principle that consciousness creates matter, that each person creates his or own reality through thoughts, beliefs, and expectations, and that the point of power through which the individual can affect change is in the present moment. Whoa, that's some deep, deep philosophical stuff there that Henson based a lot of his story upon it. And you get it now, like after... Reading that, I'm like, oh, yeah, he was going deep with this material. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, just back to the the magic of the puppeteering. So the actors who were in the costumes in the Garthams found that they had an issue and that the costumes were so heavy, it's difficult to wear for long periods. So the solution was that they would literally hang them up on a rack after about five minutes to make sure the weight was distributed so they weren't holding it all that time. So that's just got to be crazy. Just carrying that around. They're like, all right, let's hang you up just so you don't. We're going to literally. Yeah, <laughs> literally hang you so you don't feel the weight of the costume on, on your body. I loved when I read that. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Let's do that. They got to do what they got to do. Yeah. It's almost like a meat factory of Gartham. <laughs> Here's my little f- last factoid. Steve Whitmire is the performer and the voice of the scientist Skeksy. Now, Bill Bant, guess who voices the scientist Skeksy in the Netflix prequel series, The Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance? No idea. Here's a clue. There's a Star Wars connection. And he's a wonderful voice artist. 
That is Luke Skywalker himself, Mark Hamill. Oh, no way. Voices the scientist uh, Skeksy in the Netflix series. Obviously, when we get to questions, I have not seen the prequel series yet. Neither have I. But uh, I, I watched like 30 seconds of it, the, the, the pilot episode and uh, saw the cast. And I was like, oh, Mark Hamill's in this. And as soon as it started and I heard some of the Skeksis speaking, the scientists in particular, I was like, oh, I, that's him, isn't it? Because there's a little bit of the Joker yeah, in I was going to say, must be some Joker in there. Yeah, a little awesome. bit. I'm like, that's Mark Hamill. All right, moving on to box office. The Dark Crystal was released on December 17th, 1982 on 858 theaters. On an estimated budget of $15 million, it grossed $40.6 million domestically. It debuted number three at the box office behind the debut of Tootsie and the Toys starring Richard Pryor. It did move up to number two at the box office during its third week of release when it opened in an additional 125 theaters and stayed in the top 10 for another six weeks. It was the 16th highest grossing movie domestically of 1982 between Firefox and Conan the Barbarian, which we talked about back in season two. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the early 80s, we would watch At the Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Unfortunately, even though they reviewed The Dark Crystal on their show in December of 1982, no complete footage of that episode is available or what their actual review of the movie was online. What a disappointment. Crazy. So as for written reviews, I was able to actually find Gene's online, which is a rarity, but not Roger's. So Gene Siskel wrote for the Chicago Tribune that he awarded it two and a half out of four stars. And he said, the absence of dramatic tension cripples Crystal, which doesn't have much going for it, save for weird characters who look like they just walked in from the bar scene in Star Wars. In fact, a lot of the movie looks like it was ripped off from Star Wars. Ouch. Hmm. So Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 77% and it has an IMDb rating of 7.1. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. Do we have any additional thoughts and questions about The Dark Crystal besides the fact we have not seen the prequel yet? Right. have not seen the Netflix series as of yet, but now I am interested for sure. I will check that out. You know, here's my big additional thought. Again, this goes to my appreciation for the technical achievement here with this film. And also, I just want to say, I don't think Siskel was being fair. I don't think a lot of it was really that. I, I didn't see that much Star Wars in this. I mean, there's elements, of course, in the storytelling and the hero's journey, etc. And prophecy filled or whatnot. But anyway, back to, the, you know, just appreciating the technical achievement. But from a story perspective. You'd mentioned, you know, how Henson was holed up in a airport hotel. He was snowed in. I believe it was with his daughter, right? Correct. And he formulated his ideas in a 25-page story he entitled The Crystal. And look up the research. Look it up, folks. It's a lot of involvement. Like, he really came up with things that were very creative. A malvolent race, a malvolent race called the Reptus Group, which took power in a coup against the peaceful Enyunaz or Yunaze, led by Malcolm the Wise, and the last survivor of the Yunazi was Malcolm's son Brian, who was adopted by the Bada, Mithra's mystical wizards. The name of the planet in this story is actually Thra, which came from Mithra. And 
there's like all of this time and effort and creative imagination that went into the story. My point being is that even all of that, it's hard to translate that to a really effective visual media that works and fires on all cylinders and works on all levels. It's just not that easy. Again, the imaginative development, the names of the worlds, the species, specific character names, invented languages. They invented languages here. Reminiscent of J.R.R. Tolkien, who is a linguist, professor, inventor of languages. I mean, and that's what I'm saying is when you have stories such as Lord of the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter, that managed to put it all together and were effective on the screen and based on such deep, rich fantasy and lore, it just happens once in a great while. And it's just really, really hard to do. And so I still appreciate for the the attempt at the story here. But having said all of that, my question then to you, Bill, is would this film has just been better off as a series of novels that potentially turned into a streaming series back then or a, a television series back then or a, a comic book, which is actually we didn't talk about in, in the facts and trivia. That's what happened to the sequel film ideas that it became a comic book series. They scrapped the film idea. Right. Hmm. No, I'm, I mean, I'm still glad they made the movie. But yeah, as a book series, I think it would have definitely helped. I don't know. There would have been more information about everything that's going on. I think they would have made it more dramatic. It would have got more out of Jen. Maybe he does have abilities that we don't know about. Kira's journey. I mean, we both find out they were babies when all the other Gelflings get destroyed. And we, I mean, we have no idea how old they are at the beginning of the movie. I mean, are they a hundred years old? Yeah. We don't know anything. Yeah. So it'd have been nice to get, fill in some of those blanks with that kind of stuff. TV series wise, no one would have picked it up back then, to be honest. Yeah. The movie was the way to go. I was just going to say, going back to being able to have an emotional connection, emotional investment in the story doesn't necessarily rely on all the details that I was talking about that Henson had developed in his mind and written down, which I would have appreciated either seeing or hearing. But what was lacking for me was more of a complexity within the relationships and, and motivations and personal, you know, maybe some interior issues that characters may have been dealing with. But in order to, like you touched on this earlier on, Bill, is that, and it made me think is that, you, when you watch this film and you look at it and you look at the technical achievement, you're going, how did they put this all together? They had to try to put all of that on screen and make it work on screen. So it was somewhat believable that it sustained the suspension of disbelief, but then to develop a, a really involved story on top of it and not completely lose the audience is a really seemingly impossible task. Yeah, because that's tough. You're bringing someone into a whole new world that we have no concept. Right. You got to sell that in two hours. Or in the case of Lord of the Rings, I mean, they were like three hours. But that's still really hard to do. You know, you're throwing in all these species, all these different races, things that, you know, don't exist in everyday life. And to try to tell a story and show all of this and try to explain all the mythology as quickly as possible and to keep you engaged that's why we don't see too much of it today, yeah, especially. Yeah, exactly. That's my point, yeah. Outside yeah. of, yeah, television. So, yeah, I agree. 
Um, what would you say is your favorite Jim Henson project? Uh, meaning, you know, that like, was my between, yeah shows and movies and all that. Gosh, I really liked Fraggle Rock as a kid. Oh, me too. I really did. I, I loved it. That theme song. How's it go? Fraggle Rock. Yeah, Fraggle Rock. Man, just makes me feel good when I think about that show. But I have to say, it's the Jug Band, man. Emmett Otter. I, I just, that's my real nostalgic attachment. I absolutely loved that. Uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, you know, to see that every holiday when I was young, just really enjoyable. I, I really endearing. I don't know specifically, but I love the Muppets. I love the idea. It was heartwarming. It's a good holiday special. That stands out to me. Yeah, I would almost pick that, but I just haven't seen it in such the longest time. I'm almost worried if I go back, I'm like, oh, all right. But just the whole, but the heart of it was, yeah, it was amazing. Is the fact that the mom and little Emmett were trying to win that prize and they had to sacrifice like the most important thing of them in order to try and win. It's, yeah, it's, it's a nice story. Yeah. But yeah. I love when that was on. That was definitely a family got around to watch that one for the few years it was on. I believe it was HBO because HBO special. But yeah, I think I would have to go with Fraggle Rock. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't watched it. They they rebooted that, the that series. was HBO, right? That, that was, was HBO also, yeah. Eighty three to eighty seven, I think. Yeah, to think that was on at the same time as Miami Vice. Exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to our rating. So, on a scale of one to five shards, crystal shards. What do you give the Dark Crystal? I'm giving it three shards. I feel like it's not enough, but watching it today, it turns out to be. A little bit more of a showcase, even though that is clearly not the in real true intention of the storytellers here. But it does feel at times as kind of a look at what we can do where we mentioned the camera really lingers in between dialogue, in between scenes, uh, just focusing on scenery and or puppets not doing or doing a whole lot except for existing on a superficial plane. But beyond that, I mean, I give it all the credit in the world, again, for the just the imagination behind it and the achievement. It's, it was truly unique. It still feels very unique today. Uh, again, I mentioned it being a fever dream. It was uh, it was fun, fun to watch and revisit and just be kind of like, this is weird and creepy and dark. And, and uh, this wasn't a fever dream. This is a real thing. It has stood the test of time. It exists in a new series on Netflix and has a real following and popularity. And that means they did something right and got to show your love for Jim Henson and Frank Oz. So three shards for me. Yeah, I'm going three and a half. And I think it is more for the technical achievement of the film, just the beauty of just watching the movie yeah the story is simple once you figure out yeah you really need to pay attention in the beginning to understand it but visually that is what always kept me engaged and just always in the back of my mind like how the hell did they do this holy crap how did, this, yep. how did they pull this off and uh i would love to have seen more it'll be interesting when i finally show this to my kids just to see how they respond to it well, my daughter will never watch it because she's she's afraid of Muppet puppets. So that'll never happen. So I don't dispute my son who will eventually watch it just to see what he thinks. 
what his perspective will be because he doesn't really know that much about Jim Henson and his work. So this would be something definitely different. But um, but yeah, three and a half for me. Great. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. Next week, we'll be discussing The Outsiders, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary. So we hope you can join us. Have a totally great week, everyone. And now we leave you the crystal of truth. Make your world in its light. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>